The Golden Fasnet by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, dramatised by Grant Eustace, with Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes and John Moffat as Dr. Watson. When I look at the three massive manuscript volumes which contain our work for the year 1894, I confess it is very difficult to select just one case out of such a wealth of material. But on the whole, I am of the opinion that nothing unites so many singular points of interest as the episode of Yoxley Old Place. It was a wild, tempestuous night towards the close of November. Sherlock Holmes and I sat together in silence, he deciphering the original inscription on an ancient parchment, I deep in a recent treatise on surgery. It's as well we have not to turn out tonight, eh, Watson? Oh, yes, we'd be soaked before we reach the end of Baker Street. Is, uh, is that document of any interest? Uh, so far as I can make out, it is nothing more exciting than an Abbey's account dating from around 1470. Mm. Hello. What's that? Mm, sounds like a cab. And look. Yes, right outside. A man getting out. What do you want? Want? He wants us. And we, my poor Watson, want overcoats, cravats, galoshes, and every aid that man ever invented to fight the weather. Wait a bit, though. There's the cab off again. There's hope yet. He'd have kept it if he'd wanted us to come. Our late visitor proved to be Stanley Hopkins, a promising detective in whose career Holmes had several times shown a very practical interest. Come in, my dear Hopkins, and draw up to the fire and warm your toes. Why, oh, Mr. Holmes? It must be something important which has brought you out on such a night as this. It is indeed, Mr. Holmes. Oh, I've had a bustling afternoon, I promise you. Did you see anything of the Yoxley case in the latest editions? I've seen nothing later than the 15th century today. Oh, well, it was only a paragraph, and all wrong at that, so you haven't missed anything. Yoxley is in Kent, seven miles from Chatham. I've just come straight from there. Yeah, which means, I suppose, that you are not quite clear about your case. Yeah, at first it seems so simple. But there's no motive, Mr Holmes. That's what bothers me. Here's a man dead... Well, there's no denying that. But so far as I can see, no reason on earth why anyone should wish him harm. Let us hear about it. <clears throat> Some years ago, a country house, Yoxley Old Place, was taken by a Professor Corum. He's an invalid, keeping his bed half the time. His household used to consist of the housekeeper, Mrs Marker, and a maid. Both have been with him since his arrival and seem to be women of excellent character. You said used to consist. Yes. The professor engaged a secretary to assist in a learned book he's writing. Uh, in what way? Uh, writing all morning to the professor's dictation, hunting up references in the evening for the following day's work. Uh, from the first, he was a decent, quiet, hard-working fellow with no weak spot in him at all. And yet, this is the lad who has met his death this morning in the professor's study. And was this man... Uh, Willoughby Smith. Yeah, was he murdered? All the circumstances point to it. Is this an isolated house? If you were to search all England, I don't suppose you could find a household more self-contained or free from outside influences. Whole weeks would pass and not one of them go past the garden gate. At the same time, 
That gate is a hundred yards from the main London to Chatham Road. So, nothing to prevent anyone from walking in. Mm. In what manner was the body discovered? The maid was working in an upstairs room shortly before 12 this morning when she heard Willoughby Smith leave his bedroom, which he uses as a sitting room, and descend to the study immediately below her. Where was the rest of the household? Well, Professor Coram was still in bed, since he seldom rises when the weather is bad. The housekeeper was busy at the back of the house. Go on. The maid didn't hear the study door close, but a minute or so later there was a dreadful cry in the room below. At the same instant... There was a heavy thud which shook the whole house. Then all was silence. Hmm. Enough to frighten the maid out of her wits. Yes. But after a moment, she recovered her courage and ran downstairs. The study door was shut, so she opened it. Willoughby Smith was stretched upon the floor. At first, she could see no injury. But when she tried to raise him, she saw blood pouring from his neck. The carotid artery. Exactly. Hmm. Any trace of a weapon? It lay on the carpet. A small sealing wax knife with an ivory handle and a stiff blade. It was part of the fittings of the professor's own desk. Was Smith already dead? The mate thought so at first. But he opened his eyes for an instant and said, The professor, it was she. Hmm? Is the woman certain those were the exact words? She is prepared to swear to it. He said nothing else? He fell back dead. Hmm. What of the others? Mrs. Marker ran to the room and then on to tell the professor, who was sitting up in bed, horribly agitated. Still in his nightclothes? Yes. But in any case, it is impossible for him to dress without the help of Mortimer, who had not yet arrived. Who is he? The gardener, who wheels the bath chair when the professor is up. Is he of good character? Excellent. An army pensioner, an old Crimean man. Oh, well, Does the professor have any explanation of the dying man's last words? None. How many points of access are there to the study? Three. The door through which the maid came, a corridor straight to the professor's bedroom, and a second corridor leading to the back door. And thence to the garden path? Precisely. That had to be how the assassin had entered the house. Mm, and the escape route as well. It must have been along that line, since the maid blocked the first of the other two exits, and the professor's room the second. So you directed your attention to the garden path? My examination showed me that I was dealing with a cautious and expert criminal. No footmarks were to be found on the path. There could be no question, however, that someone had passed along the grass border which lines the path and done so in order to avoid leaving a track. Footsteps coming or going? It was impossible to say. There was never any outline. A large foot or a small? You could not distinguish. Oh, really? It has been pouring rain and blowing a hurricane ever since. It would be harder to read now than that parchment. Well, well, I can't be helped. What did you do after you had made certain that you had made certain of nothing? It seemed that Holmes's statement was not entirely justified. Hopkins had examined the corridor, which was lined with coconut matting that had taken no impression of any kind. Then he had examined the study and made certain that no robbery had been committed. Finally, he had examined the body and discovered that the wound could not have been self-inflicted. Unless he fell upon the knife. We found it some feet away from the body. Then, of course, there are the man's dying words. And finally, there was this, clasped in the dead man's right hand. From his pocket, Stanley Hopkins drew a golden pince-nez, 
with two broken ends of black silk cord dangling from the end of it. Willoughby Smith had excellent sight. There can be no question that this was snatched from the face or the person of the assassin. Holmes took the glasses into his hand and examined them with the utmost attention and interest. He held them on his nose, endeavoured to read through them, went to the window and stared up the street with them, and looked at them most minutely in the full light of the lamp. You are looking for a woman of good address, attired like a lady. She has a remarkably thick nose with eyes set close upon either side of it. She has a puckered forehead, peering expression, and probably rounded shoulders. But she has had recourse to an optician at least twice during the last few months. As her glasses are of remarkable strength and opticians are not too numerous, you should have no difficulty in tracing her. But, uh, Mr. Holmes, how can you possibly say Surely that? my deductions are simplicity itself. That these glasses belong to a woman, I infer from their delicacy, and also, of course, from the dying man's words. As to being a person of refinement and well-dressed, it is because they are handsomely mounted? In solid gold. Oh. And then you will find that the clips are too wide for your nose, showing that that of the lady is very broad at the base. And her eyes? My own face is a narrow one, and yet I find I cannot get my eyes into the centre, or near the centre, of these glasses. Therefore the lady's eyes are set very near to the sides of the nose. And these glasses are concave, and of unusual strength. A lady whose vision has been so extremely contracted all her life is sure to have the physical characteristics of such vision which are seen in the forehead, the eyelids, and the shoulders. Now, I can follow each of these arguments, but the double visit to the optician... Oh, the clips are lined with tiny bands of cork to soften the pressure on the nose. One is discoloured and slightly worn, the other new. Evidently, one has fallen off and been replaced. The older of them has not been there for more than a few months. They exactly correspond. So I gather the lady went back to the same establishment each time. Well, it's marvellous to think that I had all the evidence in my hand and never knew it. Uh, well, I had intended, however, to go the round of the London opticians. Of course you did. And meanwhile, have you anything more to tell us? Nothing, Mr Holmes. Oh, I think that you know as much as I do now. <laughs> Probably more. Uh, we have had inquiries made as to any stranger, but we have heard of none. And not the ghost of a motive can anyone suggest. There, I'm not in a position to help you. But I suppose you want us to come out tomorrow. If it's not asking too much, Mr Holmes. There's a train from Charing Cross to Chatham at six. Then we shall take it, eh, Watson? Six. Oh, yes, 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 yes certainly. Yeah. Then we had best get a few hours sleep. If you can manage all right on the sofa in front of the fire, Hopkins. Oh, yeah, that'll do fine. I'll light my spirit lamp and give you a cup of coffee before we start. <laughs> the gale had blown itself out next day, but it was a bitter morning when we set out upon our journey. However, a hurried breakfast at a local inn after our arrival at Chatham put us in better heart for our business at Yoxley Old Place. This is the garden path of which I spoke, Mr. Holmes. I'll pledge my word there was no mark on it yesterday. Uh, but someone has passed along the grass beside it, as you said. Yes, but you say she must have come back this way. Yes, sir. There is no other. Mm. 
a very remarkable performance. Well, I think we've exhausted the path. Let us go further. This garden door is usually kept unlocked, I suppose. So I understand. And then the visitor had nothing to do but to walk in. The idea of murder was not in her mind, or she would have provided herself with some sort of weapon instead of having to pick a knife off the writing table. Yeah. She advanced along this corridor, leaving no traces on the coconut matting. Then she finds herself in the study. How long was she here? Well, we have no means of judging. Not more than a few minutes. I forgot to tell you that Mrs. Marker had been tidying in here about a quarter of an hour before. Well, that gives us a limit. So what does our lady do? She goes over to the bureau. Hello. Oh, what's this? Just hold a match, Watson, will you? Yes, right. Why did you not tell me of this, Hopkins? I noticed it, Mr. Holmes, but you'll always find scratches round a keyhole. No, no, this is recent. See how the brush shines where it's cut. Thank you, Watson. Hmm. There's the varnish, too, like earth on each side of a furrow. Oh. oh the housekeeper must be about. Uh, uh, Mrs. Marker? Yes, sir? Uh, Mrs. Marker? Yes, sir. Did you dust this bureau yesterday morning? Oh, yes, sir. Did you notice this scratch? Oh, no, sir, I did not. Mm, I'm sure you did not, for a duster would have swept away these shreds of varnish. Who has the key of this bureau? The professor keeps it on his watch chain. Is it a simple key? No, sir, it is a Chubb's key. Very good. Mm. Thank you, Mrs. Marker, you may go. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you, Mrs. Marker. Now, we're making a little progress. Our lady enters the room, advances to the bureau, and either opens it or tries to. While she's thus engaged, Willoughby Smith enters the room. In her hurry to withdraw the key, she makes this scratch. He seizes her, and she snatches up the nearest object, which happens to be this knife, and strikes at him in order to make him let go his hold. The blow is a fatal one, and he falls. And she escapes, either with or without the object for which she came. But not through that door, Mr. Holmes. The maid would have seen anyone in the passage. Hmm. This passage to the professor's room, does it lead anywhere else? Uh, no, sir. Then no doubt the lady went out the way she came. Hmm. Let us go and make the acquaintance of the professor. But we had hardly begun to walk down the passage before Holmes stopped again. Hello. This is very important. The professor's corridor is also lined with coconut matting. Well, what of that, Mr. Holmes? Well, don't you see any bearing upon the case? Uh, well, well, I don't insist upon it. Uh, no doubt I'm wrong. And yet it seems to me to be suggestive. We entered the professor's room, which was filled to overflowing with books. The professor himself sat in the bed in the middle of the room, a cigarette in his hand. Indeed, the air was fetid with stale tobacco smoke. A smoker, Mr. Holmes? Pray take a cigarette. Thank you. 
And you, gentlemen? No, not just uh, at the moment. Thank you. No, thank you, Professor. I can recommend them. I have them especially prepared by Ionides of Alexandria. He sends me a thousand at a time. <laughs> and I grieve to say that I have to arrange for a fresh supply every fortnight. <sighs> but, uh, I know. But an old man has few pleasures. Tobacco and my work. That is all that is left to me. And now, only tobacco, what a fatal interruption. So estimable a young man. What do you think of the matter, Mr. Holmes? I've not yet made up my mind. I shall indeed be indebted to you if you can throw a light where all is so dark to us. Holmes was pacing up and down on one side of the room. He was smoking with extraordinary rapidity. It was evident that he shared our host's liking for the Alexandrian cigarettes. Yes, sir. It is a crushing blow. My magnum opus. With my enfeebled health, I do not know whether I shall ever be able to complete it now that my assistant has been taken from me. Dear me, Mr. Holmes. You are an even quicker smoker than I am myself. I am a connoisseur. <laughs> Please, have another. Thank you. I'll not trouble you with any lengthy cross-examination, Professor, but ask simply this. What do you imagine that this poor fellow meant by his last words, the Professor, it was she? The maid is a stupid country girl. Oh, well, Lloyd. She has twisted some incoherent mumblings into this meaningless message. I see. Do you have no explanation yourself for this mystery? Possibly a suicide. Young men have their hidden troubles, some affair of the heart, perhaps, which we have never known. It is a more probable supposition than murder. But the eyeglasses... Oh, I am only a man of dreams. I cannot explain the practical things of life. But we are aware what strange forms love tokens may take and be carried when a man puts an end to his own life. By all means... Take another cigarette. It is a pleasure to see anyone appreciate themselves. Thank you. It is possible I speak as a child, but to me it seems that Willoughby Smith met his fate by his own hand. Oh, oh I don't think uh, I... Tell me, Professor, what is in the bureau in your study? Nothing that would help a thief. Here's the key. You can look for yourself. No. I hardly think it would help me. I should prefer to go quietly down to your garden and turn the whole matter over in my head. Holmes and I walked up and down the garden path in silence for some time before I ventured to interrupt him. Have you any clues? It depends upon those cigarettes I smoked. It is possible I'm utterly mistaken. The cigarettes will show me. My dear Holmes, how on earth... Well, well, you may see for yourself. Ah, there's the good Mrs. Marker. Let us enjoy five minutes of instructive conversation with her. I may have remarked before that uh, 
Holmes had, when he liked, a peculiarly ingratiating way with women, and that he very readily established terms of confidence with them. In half the time he had named, he had captured the housekeeper's goodwill and was chatting with her as if he'd known her for years. Yes, Mr. Holmes, it is as you say, sir. He does smoke something terrible. I've seen that room sometimes well. You'd think it was a London fog. But I don't know if his health is better or worse for the smoking. Ah, but it kills the appetite. Well, I don't know about that, sir. I suppose the professor eats hardly anything. Well, he is variable, I'll say that for him. I'll wager he took no breakfast this morning and won't face his lunch after all the cigarettes I saw him consume. Well, you're out there, sir, as it happens, for he ate a remarkably big breakfast this morning and he's ordered a good dish of cutlets for his lunch. I'm surprised myself, for since I saw poor Mr Smith lying there on the floor, I can't bear to look at food. But the professor hasn't let it take his appetite away. Holmes seemed to be in an unusually lethargic mood. He only became attentive during our own lunch when the maid volunteered the information that Smith had been out for a walk yesterday morning and returned only half an hour before the tragedy. Then, at two o'clock, he suddenly sprung up. We must go and have it up with the professor. I beg your pardon, Mr. Come along, gentlemen. The empty plate in front of the old man bore evidence to the good appetite with which his housekeeper had credited him. He had been dressed and was seated in an armchair by the fire. Well, Mr. Holmes, have you solved this mystery yet? He shoved the tin of cigarettes towards Holmes, who stretched out his hand at the same moment, so that between them they tipped the contents onto the floor. For a minute or two, we were all on our knees retrieving stray cigarettes. When we rose again, I observed that Holmes's eyes were shining. Only at a crisis have I seen that battle signal flying. Yes, I have solved it. This instant. Mr. Holmes, you compel me to tell you that this is too serious a matter to be treated as a joke. I have forged and tested every link of my train, Professor, and I am sure that it is sound. A lady yesterday entered your study to possess herself of certain documents in your bureau. She had a key of her own, for the key you offered me earlier does not have the slight discoloration which the scratch upon the varnish would have produced. This is most interesting. Surely, having traced this lady so far, you can also say what has become of her. I will endeavour to do so. Your secretary interrupts her. She stabs him in order to escape. This fatal catastrophe is an unhappy accident which horrifies her. She rushes wildly away from the scene of the tragedy, but she has lost her glasses in the scuffle and, being extremely short-sighted, is nearly helpless without them. Oh, yes. She runs down a corridor which, being lined with coconut matting, she imagines to be that by which she had come. Too late, she understands, she has taken the wrong passage and her retreat is cut off. Oh. But she must go on. So it is that she enters your room. But just a minute, Mr. Holmes. All very fine, Mr. Holmes. But there is one little flaw in your splendid theory. I was myself in my room, and I never left it during the day. I am aware of that, Professor. For you spoke with her, recognised her, 
and aided her to escape. You're mad! Insane! I helped her? Then where is she? She is behind that bookcase. The old man threw up his arms and fell back in his chair. At that moment, the bookcase at which Holmes had pointed swung round upon a hinge, and a woman emerged into the room. You are right. I am here. She had the exact physical characteristics that Holmes had described, and yet, despite all those disadvantages, there was a certain nobility in the woman's bearing which compelled respect. Madam, it is my duty to arrest... Yes, I am your prisoner. I killed the young man. But you are right, you who say it was an accident. I did not even know it was a knife I held in my hand when I struck at him. Madam, I fear that you are far from well. I have only a little time, but I would have you know the truth. I am this man's wife. What? He is not an Englishman. He is a Russian. Who is he? His name I will not tell. God bless you, Anna. (laughs) Why do you cling so hard to that wretched life of yours, Sergius? It has done harm to many and good to none, not even to yourself. You said you are this man's wife? Yes. He was fifty, and I a foolish girl of twenty when we married. We were reformers, revolutionaries. He and I and and many more. Then came a time of trouble. And in order to save his own life, my husband betrayed his own wife and companions. For some it meant the gallows. For others, like me, Siberia. And with his reward, he fled to England. But what were you trying to take from the Bureau? Letters. From a good friend who who wrote, dissuading me from my chosen course as a revolutionary, but who was imprisoned with the rest of us. Letters which would prove his innocence and procure his release if put into the hands of the Russian government. Letters which he kept. So, when my term was over, I vowed to get them with the help of an agent who was here for a short time as my husband's secretary, before that poor young man I killed. And he obtained a duplicate key for you? Yes. And I had succeeded. I had the letters and was locking the bureau when the young man came in. I had seen him already that morning. He had met me in the street and I had asked him where Professor Coram lived. I did not know that he was in his employ. Exactly. The secretary came back and told his employer. Then in his last breath he tried to send a message that it was she. She whom he had just discussed. Let me speak. When I found myself in my husband's room, he spoke of giving me up. I showed him that if he gave me to the law, I could give him to those he betrayed. His life would be forfeit. For that reason and no other, he shielded me. He thrust me into into that dark hiding place known only to himself and let me have some of his food. When the police had left this house, 
so then would I. But in some way you have read our plans. It is my profession to do so. Then take these letters and deliver them to the Russian embassy. That way I can still save Alexis, if not myself. As she handed Holmes the papers, a small file fell from her hand. Watson, quickly, it's poison. Too late. I took it before I left my hiding place. I charge you, sir, to remember the packet. A simple case, and yet in some ways an instructive one. It hinges from the outset upon the pince-nez. From the strength of them, the wearer must have been virtually blind without them. Yet you ask me to accept, Hopkins, that she walked back along a narrow strip of grass without a false step. So you believed she had remained within the house? A hypothesis supported by the similarity of the two corridors. They could easily be mistaken for one another. Yes, but how did you know where she was hiding? Books were piled everywhere on the floor, but not in front of that bookcase. By smoking enough of those cigarettes, I dropped ash all over the carpet in front of it. Upsetting the cigarette box later obtained me an excellent view of the floor. I could see quite clearly from the traces in the ash that the prisoner had, in our absence at lunchtime, come out from her retreat. To be the reason for the professor's healthy appetite that Mrs. Marker spoke of. Precisely. Well, Hopkins, here we are at Charing Cross, and I congratulate you on having brought your case to a successful conclusion. Oh, but Mr. Hopkins... You'll be going to headquarters, no doubt. I think Watson and I will drive together to the Russian embassy. In the Golden Pazenay by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden plays Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, Sean Barrett, Inspector Stanley Hopkins, Maddie Head, Mrs. Marker, Hugh Dixon, Professor Corum, and Rosalind Ayres, Anna. The music was written by Joss Sanglier and played by Joss Sanglier and Elizabeth Fellows. The Golden Pansnay was dramatised by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions.